Someone there? I can hear you. Who is that? Who's in there? Episode 247 of the Brooklyn Blast Furnace podcast with my newfound friend over here, David A. Armstrong, director, cinematographer, producer. We can get technical, say director of photography, assistant this, the film worker. Is that good or no? It sounds laborious. I like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all encompassing under the umbrella. I work in the film industry. I made, I made a poor choice. I turned to the film industry. <laughs> Don't sell yourself short because you've done some incredible shit. Um, just a few things in no particular order and by means, not everything that you've done at all. Um, first and foremost, the first six Saw movies, that in and of itself, you could just hang your hat up like, you know, I did some good shit. Um, Thank you. Hell, Hellraiser Revelations. There's a funny um, story behind that movie. Yeah, well, I, I would love to talk about it um, if you want. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Your directorial debut with Pawn, P-A-W-N. I know my accent, my, my, some people might think I said P-O-R-N, but Pawn. If you, um, when people see how I look, they probably think it is Pawn. Right, you see. <laughs> um. A movie that I just recently saw for the first time, which I thought was really cool, was 213. Oh, yeah, yeah. My friend, uh, uh, yeah, Mark Thompson. Yeah, that was a very cool movie. Um, the Grave Dancers, Kill Theory, Sam's Lake, Skinwalkers. And last night we were on the phone. Was that last night or two nights ago or whatever? Last and night. We, yeah, that was last night. And we were shooting the shit, and I had no idea because, in, at least in your IMDb, it's not credited, but you did a whole bunch of what I find probably pretty interesting is you did a whole bunch of MTV Cribs. It which, actually is. you got to scroll all the way to the bottom. 
And it's probably just one little small. Yeah, I got it. No, no, no. I list a lot. There are a lot of them listed there. You got to scroll way down, way down into the videos. Okay. So. So how you doing, my man? What's going on? Thank you for your time, first and foremost. When I first hit you up, I'm like, I know you have a private Instagram account. I'm like, this guy's low key. This guy probably doesn't want to be bothered. Eh, let me just shoot him a message anyway. I'd like to know what that, what does that look like when someone says low key? Does that mean I'm just, I'm stoned and I'm just watching the office all day? No, but the office, if, if I still smoked pot and, and, and I smoked, I would probably want to sit and watch the office because that would be an experience because it's a hilarious show. No, I just think, you know, you know, it's not like you're not like on a verified account and this whole big fucking to do. And, you know, so seems like, you know, you're like a low key guy, at least on social media. You just kind of keep it. Yeah, I don't have a, I don't have a big presence. I mean, I right. think I've just watched too many people get themselves in trouble because of social media. Oh, God, know, yeah. the wrong pick, the wrong statement, the wrong. It's, you know, that that's a whole other podcast. Oh, oh. Oh, hundred <laughs> percent. Because I mean, it's, 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 I think, I think social media and, and the whole internet thing, it it's, it's the, it's the beginning of imagination and the end of imagination all at the same time, you know? Yeah. Like, I, 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 can, I won't disagree with that. Sure. All that it does is amazing. And all that it does is amazing. But, yeah. you know, I mean, there's just the downfalls are just huge and, you know, and not everyone should have a voice in this world. And not everyone. Dude, that's, I say the same thing. I say the same thing, man. Like, it's just so bizarre. You can say freedom and speed or whatever, all that shit, but. No, it has nothing to do with legality or. No, I know. I don't think. I don't think that I should be able to directly message the fucking president. Like, I just don't think that should be allowed. I don't know. Well, it's it's not that I don't know if it's that it shouldn't be allowed. It's just some people don't have anything to say and they think they do. You know, it's everybody. It's really important to know your place in the world, what you're good at, and what you're not good at. Like, I mean, the film industry is a great example. I mean, I've seen more things get killed by entitlement, meaning. I'm paying for this movie. I'm entitled to have something to say about everything. Ugh. And maybe you're not a storyteller, but they suddenly go, you know, this drama about a boy and his dog, we should have a yellow submarine in it. And it's like, what? And, <laughs> and, and why? Well, I'm paying for the movie. Or you sometimes see that with talent. Yeah. I'm getting paid to be the lead. And so he's like, maybe you're good as an actor, but not as a storyteller. It's, you know, it's, Films that succeed or anything that succeeds, I think, is when everyone knows their place in the world. And you right. defer to the people who are, you know, yeah. who are good at what they're doing. And I think that's what a successful director and cinematographer does is, you know, you don't try to be smarter than your Dolly Grip. You may have an idea of what you want, but he may have a better idea. I mean, I Dolly Grip came up with a great idea on Saw 2 since we're segueing all over the place here. Oh, this, uh, is, this is how this goes. So, so in, in the end of Saw 2, uh, uh, Jigsaw's in what turns out to be this big freight elevator. Yes. Right? And so, you know, and so, but it's really just in a warehouse, you know, it's just, and they're like, okay, you know, what in-camera thing, everything about Saw, I'd say 90% of everything 
and saw us in camera, meaning it was done there live in front of the camera. No special effects. No, I mean, we we never went on exterior. We barely ever went exterior on Saw. It was all in one big, huge soundstage. At least Saw Tooth On, which was all done in Toronto. First Saw was done here in Los Angeles. But um, the, the, I was trying to figure out, like, so you know freight elevators, right? I, and I, warehouses. Yeah. You got that wooden gate you got to lift up, right? And then you walk in, you lower the wooden gate, and as, and there's a second gate. And as you go down, one gate stays there, the other, and then the elevator goes down. Yeah. But so the production designer David Hackle had direct, had devised a, a wooden gate that that could be lifted up and lowered down, but it was just one. And so I'm sitting there with the idea of like, okay, I mean, the, off the top of my head, the quick easiest thing to do is you just boom up and everyone acts like you're in an elevator but but in reality that wooden gate would stay in place right what's behind it would go down but i was like so the dolly grip he said you know and i got an idea why don't we take a yabangi a yabangi is a real thing yeah what is a yabangi a yabangi is named after the yabangi tribe and in South America, you, you ever see those, you know, those big Tonka toy things in people's ears and in the nose? And well, yeah. the Yabangi tribe will put those things in their ears. That's where the term Yabangi comes from, right? Okay. So a Yabangi is this big piece of metal that's either one foot or three foot, usually gold. Why? I don't know. And it's and and where the camera on a dolly, the camera sits here. And if you took the camera off, you could put the Yabangi on here and it sticks out. Okay. And it's for if you want to put the camera at the end of it, right? So there's nothing in its way. So you could tilt down and look up and no dolly underneath. But the dolly grip said, hey, why don't we put the yabangi here, put the camera <laughs> here, and like a like a tongue depressor, we'll stick the yabangi the, the, the under the wood gate. So when the dolly goes up, the camera's here, the wood gate's here, they both go up together. And it gives the illusion of what's behind it is going down. Gotcha. So I was like, oh, genius. You know, I mean, yeah. If somebody looked at that and said, hey, great shot, David. I'd say, yeah, but my dolly grip came up with it. But All I think right. that's the, I think that's the key to any successful filmmaker is you want to be a you want to be a kind dictator. I mean, it, right. it, you know, buck stops with you at the end, but you want to listen to your people and you want to take the ideas in yeah. and uh, and not kill them off. Right. This all this all started about people and social media and yeah who just just nobody cares about your opinion because your opinion means absolutely nothing but you think it does and and just just go do something constructive i would i have i've concluded during the last two years during the pandemic i go camping a lot and the pandemic's been perfect for it just me and the wife just go off and disappear into the mountain so i look at a lot of youtubes you know people gone there i'm like oh this looks good but i have determined that majority of the people out there have no taste in music I think 90% of the music people put to their YouTube videos just sucks balls. Yeah, it does. I'm just like, I'm like, great video, but God, this music is horrible. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I think people have absolutely no sense of music. No, me neither. I, I we can we 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 can we can go on and on and on and on about music all day long because yeah, I know because that, that that was your thing, right? I mean, that's how this all started for you. Yeah, yeah. In in the beginning, like you know, like if 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 there happens to be like because I know that when I first started this whole thing, I had like a very small specific demographic of people listening just because of the people that I was having on and whatnot. And it's all grassroots. It's all like I never paid for a, an advertisement or anything like that. 
Um, so, but I know that maybe some people don't listen as much, but I know for a fact over the last 20 something episodes that I've been doing, you know, cinematographers and horror people and stuff, I've gained like new listeners. So if you're just listening for the first time, I'll just give you a very brief history on how this whole thing started. I used to book these small like hardcore music, um, like hardcore, like metal, I guess, if you don't know what the term is along those lines in a small bar here in Brooklyn. And, uh, I was doing, you know, Sunday matinees and, and, and it was cool. I booked about two dozen shows or whatever. And me and the owner of the place and a longtime friend of mine were discussing one, one guy is in a band who signed to a major record label. It was an independent major. And then the guy who owns the bar, we all had our specific jobs to do because what we wanted to do was shut down the entire block and do an outdoor weekend, like, Brooklyn music festival with like heavy music and crazy shit going on. So the first person that had a job to do missed a phone call because they were hammered the night before and they missed a phone call. One of the most important things to get the permits to shut down the block because all that's time sensitive being in New York city. So our ideas and our big dreams just got shut down from, from the gate. And, but before that happened, we were like, let's just start a podcast just to promote this thing. All right, cool. Get some of the local bands on, whatever, whoever's going to be here, just basically just to promote this weekend thing that never happened. So that never happened. Me and these two people were doing the podcast. We enjoyed the podcast for the first like 30 episodes or so there's me and two other people doing it. And then from 30 something to 50 is me and my friend, John. And then from 50 on is me, only me. But, um, it was very, very music centric and, and, but, but not necessarily like one thing, like I would have like people from metal bands and hardcore bands and underground rappers, graffiti writers, stuntmen, tattoo artists. And then I felt like it was getting boring for me because even though I was having different people on from different bands and whatnot, I felt like I was having like a redundant, repetitive conversation with everybody. I just felt like I was having the same talk. So I'm like, listen, I don't do this for money. I do this because I enjoy talking with people that I respect what they do, or I'm a fan of what they do. So I'm not going to pigeonhole myself into being this like heavy metal thing. So I'm like, listen, I grew up on horror movies and stuff like that. I go to horror conventions all the time. So I'm just going to do shit that I enjoy. And the last, I'm going to say about 20, I think there's one person from a band over the last 20 something episodes. And I want to go in this direction because I have different conversations with everybody. So that, that was the whole beginning of it. And my, my opinions on music, I have a lot of them, but then again, my opinion don't mean shit. I don't pretend I'm important. <laughs> you know, that's another thing with people on social media. They write these things with like this preachy undertone, like they know, and like, you got to let me know. Oh, like, like I got to know something like, I don't know. Like, like you, you sound like you, you think you're way too important than you really are. Settle down. You know, settle yourself. So, so you, so you thought spicing it up would have me on the show? <laughs> oh yeah, I, I go, man. I just, I don't know about spicing it up. I didn't know if you were a spicy type guy. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> I'm not Italian. Not either. I'm part. It's you know, I'm born and raised here. I grew up around a lot of that stuff. Well, with a name like yours, it sounds Italian. That's just how. That's just how that all worked out. I'm, I'm Italian, Irish, and English, but I'm only like maybe like 
I'm mostly English, I think, but then that could be a bunch of bullshit because my father is listening. <laughs> my, my my father is listening to his parents, and then my mother's listening to her parents, and they're just going off by what they heard or what they know about. So I don't know. I could be fucking Japanese and Haitian for all I know. I don't know nothing. There you go. I don't think so, but you know, <laughs> I don't know. What right, so that's how we got here. <laughs> yeah, thanks for cutting me off. I needed that though. I was just like going. Yeah, so that's how we got here. <laughs> so do you play a musical instrument? I don't. Do you sing? No, but if I was ever in a band, I would, that's what I would have to do. And I wouldn't say sing. I would just probably have to yell at people. There's plenty of places for that. So your love for music is just strictly love, not not necessarily to perform or play. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just grew up, I mean, as a little kid, I mean, as far back as I could ever remember, I just grew up with music in the house and just, yeah. Yeah. Music and as as a young kid, music and horror movies and shit. Like, uh, it sounds insane, but like one of the first things that I remember watching on TV, I was getting into an argument with my older sister. I was like six years old. She wanted to watch like some Brady Bunch special. And I was arguing with her to watch on the big TV downstairs, the color one, you know, because we only had two TVs way back in the day. And we argued over it because I wanted to watch Helter Skelter on TV. I wanted to watch the Helter Skelter document, you know, the, the movie with Manson. And well, listen, I, if, it, if it was the Brady Bunch goes to Hawaii, if it was I that. Know, I think it was a Brady Bunch, something or other. Yeah, it was goes to Hawaii. Oh, no, no, no. That that would have been special. I'm, I'm going to have to side with your sister on that. Oh. That was a big episode. Was it? Yeah, they went to Hawaii. I mean, that was, that was big time shit back then. For oh, a, for I know. Show to go on the road like that. <laughs> right. Oh man, it was like the final episode of Mash. You know, Ooh, yeah, I mean that was a whole big deal. I, I know that. Then there, and then of course there was the infamous Jump the Shark episode from Happy Days. Yeah, I remember that. I watched that on TV. I used to, I used to, uh, I used to watch uh, the rehearsals of Happy Days when I was a kid. So in the mid seventies, um, we uh, I'm originally from Santa Barbara, but in the mid 70s, my mom ended up in Los Angeles from like, I don't know, 73 to like 77. And I went to a junior high called LeConte Junior High School, which is up by Channel 5, KTL 5 up on Sunset. And, and the school's right by it. And so I used to walk home. I used to live uh, down in uh, Normandy and Melrose. And so, um, you know, I just did a long walk home. But, you know, you, if you don't have a quarter for the bus, it took, it took a long walk. And one day, I'm, and on the way home, you, you come down one of the side streets there and it jumps off right where the old RKO building is. It's got the globe on it, which used to have the RKO Tower. But now it's part of Paramount Studios, right? Okay. And so uh, one day I came around the corner with my friend Ike because uh, he lived across the street from me. And we come around the corner, there's this long line. And we said, let's get in this line. So we got in the line and then they started letting people in and then they file you into the little bleachers and I'm looking down and there's the set of happy days. No and like, shit. I have no, I, I have no idea what's going on. So we just follow, we sat down and they would do a live rehearsal with camera and everything with an audience. And then that, and then they would do And Then after that, they would bring in another audience for the live taping of it. Well, a film back then. Yeah. Right. So, so I was like, shit, this is, this, this is amazing. You know, and I love, I, I loved the movies as a kid. I had like a super eight camera when I was like 10 
Yeah. I used to make, I used to shoot and cut with a little splicer. I had no idea what I was doing, but I'd tape these movies together with my friends and just go around and shoot shit all the time. So, so when the taping was over of happy days, they'd send everyone back out towards Melrose and me and my friend Ike would go the opposite way. And nobody stopped you back then. And, and we just walk out the back door and there we were on the Paramount lot. Wow. So every Friday, that was our thing to go watch a taping of Happy Days. And then we'd go wander around the Paramount lot and we'd go over to a Western set. And and then there they had these tunnels. You like can go into a store, a little proprietary store, and you go down these stairs and there's a tunnel that goes underneath the street and comes up on the other side. And it would be like running around the tunnels, running around the sets. And then I'm like, oh, shit, it's New York City. And we'd run around the buildings and... <laughs> That's awesome, though. This is back in the 70s when, you know, there was no such thing as terrorists and real shit. You know, security would come by on a bike going, hey, what are you kids doing here? Yeah. And I go, oh, we're just we're just passing through. And they're like, well, you got to leave. And we're like, OK. And then he'd ride away. Yeah. And then you hang out still. And then we hang out. We, we'd only go home because now it's dark. And, mm-hmm. it's like, and we would just wander out the gate. And we did that for a, we did that for a whole season. Happy days on Friday and then run around and we'd be like, hey, let's go back to the Western set. So yeah. that was, that became my, my playground. I, you know, but that's what, that, that, that's a cool freaking playground, man. A lot of people don't have that. You know what I mean? I, I have a friend, I had him on, I don't know, a few months ago. Um, and he's a first assistant cameraman. His name is Randy Shinovsky. I was um, the first assistant camera for eight years. Okay. And, and he's, he's, aces like it's, it's just an amazing person just in general and um he he takes pictures all the time and and he's always at the warner brothers studios at the back lots and all that stuff so he'll post like oh like a picture of him standing in a particular spot like oh this is where so-and-so shot this and then they'll change it all up or whatever for whatever movie it'll be the same exact spot and then like three other movies were filmed right here but just the way they change everything over it's I look at all this stuff, like, I don't know, I find that kind of stuff fascinating. Like all these back lots and certain streets on Warner Brothers Studios, how they just like rip down and rebuild and revamp and, and just. Well, Warner Brothers, if you go around Warner Brothers, the back lot, they have a big brass plaque on each studio now, which tells you all the films that were shot there. Hmm. You know, Casablanca, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, the 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 uh, you know if you take the Universal I mean sorry the 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 tour at Universal you know they drive you through uh, Back to the Future downtown and everything yeah. but that's a rebuild because back in the I don't know nineties I know I'm trying to think Valerie when was that when Warner Brothers I mean sorry when Universal had burned down I think that was in the nineties yeah all of that just burned to the ground like all that back lot stuff I mean they completely rebuilt that so when you see oh, the shit. that lot but that was uh, that was that was a huge loss it was a huge mess too because I've talked to people there who've said that the fire department just sort of sat by and watched because there was a confusion in communication and, uh, you know, and there was just, uh, there was a bit of a mess, but that all that, but all that, that all that was rebuilt. I mean, you would never, you never could tell. I mean, I, when I go and I'm on the back lot and if I walk through the uh, back to the future, you know, town square, I mean, it's identical, but obviously yeah. they knew how to reproduce it. Wow. But, um, yeah. I love, I love walking back lots. I love walking all that stuff. Um, 
they it was it was Universal who thought of making it a tour. Um, if you ever go to Culver City, where um, where the MGM lot is, well, it, well, it's now Sony, okay, big Sony, but it used to be MGM, and um, uh, all of that was back lot, just like at at Twenty uh, Century Fox, you know, uh, Century City. Mm-hmm. You know, Century City was the back lot. That's why it's called Century City. It was all back lot. So they tore all that shit down and whatnot. But if you go to Culver City, there's the weirdest thing that's in a park across the street from now Sony. It looks like an obelisk from like 2001, except it's white. It's this long, thin, I don't know, I'm going to say 15, 20 story high, just cement thing it it's 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 very uh, it's not very deep and it's just super tall and it's solid cement and at the top is just this big glass window that goes all the way around it and it's just been sitting in this park forever and it makes no sense of what it was so i finally dug around and found out what it was is they before world war ii they thought let's give tours to the back lot here at MGM, right? Because you could go up and you go, oh, there's Gone with the Wind set, and uh-huh. you can see all this stuff. So they built this tower, so you could walk up to the top of this tower, look out the glass windows, and look at, look down at all of the back lot. Ah. But then World War II happened, and when they came back from World War II, it just kind of got pushed to the side. So I mean, if you're from oh. Los Angeles or Culver City. And there's this park, I forget the name of it, that's kind of catty corner to Sony on the backside, on the south side. There's this monolithic looking tower that's that's like this big, looks like a white Hershey bar just sitting on its side with a really? glass tower. It was so you could go and look down at all that shit. But, you know, they eventually awesome. they tore it all down. Universal was the only one who thought, you know, people will pay to see this shit. Sure. Yeah, why not? See, I've only been to California once and I need to go back. That was a long time ago. It was like 2000, I don't know, eight, maybe I was in, in, in California, Long Beach, but that was it. I was there yeah, on a well, job. I was there on a job for like two, three weeks and it sucked because the people I was with, we, we weren't even actually working. We were on standby, but the people I was with didn't want to do anything. So I'm like, you kidding me? Like we have a company rent a car. We're sitting here waiting for a phone call. We're just sitting in hotel rooms for two weeks. Like, you guys are boring. So I took the rental car one day and I drove into Hollywood just so I could walk around and just see like the, the friggin' stupid Hollywood walk of fame. I had to walk past the whiskey. Yeah. You know, stupid, stuff like stupid Hollywood walk of fame. Well, you know, well, you know, I, I say that because I say that because I felt like a tourist and it's like, I'm, I'm not defending. By, <laughs> and I'm surrounded by Don't tourists fuck with in New stars. York. Don't fuck with the stars. Right. Well, I just, I want to actually, I wanted to see that and I needed to go past and, See like the whiskey and stuff like that. So, but that's now, all I Hollywood did. Hollywood Boulevard. Now, as I said, I grew up in Hollywood in the seventies, in the mid seventies. Um, Hollywood Boulevard back there was was god awful, disgusting. Oh, like sure. you would never, you would never in your life be there after sunset. It was just, it was dangerous. It was dirty, and I always, even as a kid, I felt bad for tourists coming because you're coming to Hollywood. Uh, and, and, the, and at the time, the Hollywood sign, half of it had fallen down and no one had done anything with it. Uh, and it was just it was ghetto land. It was dirty. It was, you know, it was where the crack was being sold at night. It was just shit. I'd say here. I mean, Jesus. Are you so, going yeah, to the, the same story for Times Square, I think. Oh, Times Square is is it's legit Disney. 
at night, you walk there, it looks like daylight. There's nothing but billboards and everything. Rewind 25, 30 years, you're not going, you're not stepping foot in there at night. Unless yeah, you, Hollywood, unless, Hollywood was the same and they've changed it. But, and so now it's either half of it's owned by Scientology and half of it's owned by Disney. So they've just, they've all scooped that up. But I mean, you know, Hollywood is now, you know, if you're a tourist, it's, it's, it's got some nice stuff and sure. they, they created a, you know, a lot of stuff and the Chinese theater and El Capitan. And so, yeah, it, I mean, it's worth it. They got restaurants and places you could take of your course. family, but oh man, in the seventies, it was bad. And you get into East Hollywood Man, it was really like like it was really now. It was just massage parlors and and drug deals going down. Oh right? yeah, oh well. See, but Times Square, like we, were at, it was out in the open. Just peep show, live sex shows. Just Forty Second and Eighth Avenue. It was called the it was the the Forty Second Street Theater District, and it was just a huge avenue of just movie theater after movie theater after movie theater with the marquee just. Porno movies, just hookers everywhere, drug dealers everywhere, just straight out in the open. There's a, nah, there's a the good old days. There's um, there, see, I was too young, like like in like the late seventies and stuff. I was too young. I was born in seventy five. I remember like a little bit vaguely of like the end of all of that, like a little bit. But like, there's a brand new documentary on Netflix called The Times Square Killer. It's like three episodes, and it goes right into the heart of it. So if anyone's watching and haven't seen that, you want to get a real glimpse of Times Square in the in the late 70s, early 80s, you watch that because it's funky, man. It's it's just outright gross. <laughs> and I'm not, you know, faint of heart at all. Like nothing really, really strike me as that. Yeah, so that was Hollywood back then. Yeah. Then, uh, but, you know, it, it, it had always been my dream to yeah. work in movies. I mean, I didn't know what a cinematographer, I didn't even know there was a cinematographer as a kid. I just knew they made movies. I mean, I never really thought about, you know, all the things that most people, I think, who are ignorant of the industry, um, you know, say, I don't know. You know, I mean, people say, cinematographer, what do you do? I've had people say, okay, if I'm watching a movie, what is it you did? You know, it's, 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 and I think that's part of like why they got rid of backlots. Like, you know, you're standing around, you know, you work in, who's interested in this? Who's interested with Gone with the Wind back lot? Who cares? You know, everyone does. You just, yeah. it's, when, when you're in it, it's, you know, if you scuba dive every day for a living, it's just a job. But for someone else, it's like an adventure. It's Absolutely. You just got to think in other people's perspective. A hundred percent. Because like I watch, like, I watch like the Saw movies. And then I realize I put everything together. I'm like, yo, dude, all right, this guy did all of this. And then I'm looking, I'm like, and, and like, especially the first one, because the first Saw movie, obviously, you know, it, 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 that that movie took off like crazy because there was nothing like it at the time. And it was very, I'm going to say it as an outsider. I'm not saying the working of actually doing it, but from the viewer's point, it was very simple. Right? One set, very no crazy bells, whistles, nothing. Just a crazy twisted story in this dirty ass bathroom. And there was something very basic about watching that movie, growing you know, up being a horror fan. What's fascinating about that movie is, is, is people get lost in the genre and the movie itself. And no one questions the simple little fact of 
what bathroom right. is this big? Yeah, no, absolutely. Sure. And why is there just one toilet in right. this bathroom this big? Right. And who sits on this toilet? Right. In this one <laughs> toilet bathroom. This yeah, there's huge, yeah, there's huge standpipes with the fucking valves. There's a big nasty fucking yeah. It's 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 not your standard bathroom by any means. But what else am I supposed to call it? It's like a bathroom. So, so just to give away uh, uh, secrets, uh, what was in the toilet uh, were Snicker bars and cocoa powder. <laughs> nice. Hey, hey, there you go. Hey, there you hey. go. Huh? Hollywood yeah. secrets: Snickers and cocoa powder. <laughs> Just sprinkle a little of this shit on it. Get see what I did? Shit. Get, yeah, oh, I saw. I saw we I saw exactly what you did. Yeah, but like clever. doing it clever. I like clever. Um <laughs> these, but like so, like a movie like that. So I'm thinking, I'm like, you are sitting there, obviously. There's actually a behind the scenes picture. It must you it must have been somewhere on Christmas time because you're wearing a Christmas sweater. I don't have a Christmas Christmas sweater. Oh, uh, uh, you're you're wearing you're wearing a long sleeve. It looks like little reindeers on it. <laughs> it does not sound familiar. I'll send it to you. It's yeah. like uh, it's like the if guy it does exist, and you post that shit. I'll come find you. What do you mean? I'm wearing a fucking sweater with reindeers on it. It looks like it because the first thing I did, first thing I did when I saw the picture, I was like, oh, maybe they're just filming this around Christmas time, and he wore like this silly sweater to work. No, it's the hundred percent to you. Email I'll send you. I'll, I, I'm not going to do it right now, but I will send it to you when we wrap up. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening and you're not seeing our faces, I have no fucking idea what he's talking about. <laughs> Reindeers? I don't know, something like that. Christmas themed something could be snowmen, could be Santa hats. I don't know. Is, these are your horror questions. I don't have horror questions. They're talking about saw, and then I remembered about the picture behind the scenes where it looks like you have a Christmas sweater on. That's all. That sounds. That doesn't sound familiar at all. Almighty, I hate sweaters. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I hate sweaters. Um, so, like you, I'm just thinking about. You're in the middle of all of this chaos. I, I don't know. Like, like I said, I find wait, something. Wait, how did fashion. you transition from the saw set to Christmas sweaters? You were on the saw set with a Christmas sweater. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I have all the behind the scenes photos. I was the only one with a camera there. Well, then maybe I have a, maybe I have a, a one that no one else has. Bro, you're sitting, you're sitting on, I don't even want to say. We'll it was summertime. It was. You, you were oh, sitting, wait a minute. Do I have a big? Is it black? No, it's red. <laughs> anyway, you're sitting down, like pretty much on the floor, but you're on like an apparatus. I don't know the terminology of what it is. The camera is in front of you. The guy who eventually saws his own friggin' foot off is off to the side, and he's looking at a script. It's definitely behind the scenes, and there's a couple other people in the. Yeah, shop. it just also doesn't make sense because we shot that during. It was. It was bloody hot in there. <clears throat> and it was so imagine. hot in that soundstage. Like when we were up in Jigsaw's lair, James wanted dry ice, like a foot of dry ice. But as soon as we laid it out, and by the time we hit the sticks and set action, 90% of it evaporated. If you look in some of those scenes, you'll see a little bit of mist. Really? <clears throat> but um, I'll show you the picture. I'll show you the picture. I'll send you the picture. No, it doesn't sound familiar. All right. Well, so now, what? I mean, you did say earlier that uh, 
you were running around, you know, filming shit. You didn't know what you were doing, taping stuff as a kid. Did you eventually like before you became like an actual cinematographer? Is that what you really wanted to do? Is that like what you set out to do beforehand? I well, the irony is after all this journey, I'm I direct now and and, and with my fiance Valerie, we we screenwrite. So we write scripts together in different genres. And uh, and I've directed two films. But no, I, I I mean, while I was a camera assistant and a cinematographer, I never wanted to be a director. It just looked like not a fun job. Unhappy actors, unhappy producers who take you into rooms and lecture you about how you're over budget or over too much time. And, and I was like, I don't want that job. Yeah. Um, but uh, as a kid, I just loved movies. And I had no idea where, you know, I, I was like 12. And my uncle asked me, he said, what are you going to do when you grow up? I'm like, I don't know. And he goes, why don't you be a cinematographer? You always got a camera in your hand and you love movies. And I was like, oh, okay. What's that? Right. right. So, I mean, so that, that, I mean, my history is about eight years as a camera assistant. And then, uh, then I went to AFI and graduated in 98. I got my master's from the American Film Institute. And then I continued doing camera assisting work after that because I had to pay the bills. That's why I was doing a lot of MTV Cribs. And then um, and then I did a really bad, bad, low-budget film that never saw the light of day. What was it called? Uh, Seventh Veil. Okay. It's horrible. I'm not even sure if it's on IMDb. It just It literally is sitting in a closet. It was this really bad half a million dollar film. And here, here's the premise of it, it. Just the premise is so bad. It's uh, strippers are being murdered at a strip joint. Uh-huh. Local cop goes in to investigate, obviously meets a stripper there that they kind of have a thing off. They kind of hit it off, right, uh-huh. with each other. But here's the kick. The stripper is blind. Ah, uh, Okay. <laughs> And hence the veil. Uh, go on, go on. Yeah. So, um, and the movie's so embarrassingly bad. I'm glad it never saw the light of day. But it was my first 35 millimeter. You know, half a million dollars out of out of school. I was like, yeah, I got a film. Um, but it was so it was it was so badly planned and so badly executed. And that even the the woman who was playing the stripper, we're in the strip joint. So we're up here in Hollywood and the producer makes a deal with some guy to real, you know, a real strip joint. Can we use your strip joint? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And so we're loading in the equipment that day and this big, huge Russian guy comes in and goes, what are all you fucking people doing in my strip joint? And we're like, <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, did you guys not okay this with anyone? And and there and, and someone said, "Well, we paid this guy the strip here. He's just a bartender. I'm the owner." And so the bartender <laughs> was trying to make some money, and so they had to pay off this guy. And, and you know, I mean, Russian strip joints are—I I think—are laundry mats for money, you know. Uh-huh. And but anyway, so that got straightened out, and we're doing the scene, and this is where the lead girl's going to come out. She's going to be the stripper, and and the the uh, the director. I can't believe I'm telling this story. The director goes, okay, this is the scene. He had, he had a heavy accent. This is the scene where you strip and come out. And she goes, uh, no. And she, he goes, what? 
She goes, no, you never asked me if I could take off my clothes and it's not in my contract. I don't take off my clothes. Oh, shit. And I'm sitting there just snickering behind the camera. Of course, we got a blind stripper who doesn't strip. (laughs) That's awesome. You should release it just as a goof. The first AD on that film was a guy named Dan Hefner, who had done a lot of big movies. And and, uh, I'm not quite sure why Dan was doing that film, but we met on that film. He was partners with a guy named Greg Hoffman, who was in partners with Mark Berg and Oren Kulis, who were the Saw guys. And um, and they got uh, uh, and so and it was a tough film. looking back. I was surprised Dan called me because it was just like chaos. So Dan <laughs> called me up and said, hey, I'm going to send you a script and um, and and, and uh, uh, you know, take a read. And and so I did take a read now. The when Saw was being made, it was like two years after 9-11, right? So yeah. immigration was up about anything. So so when James came to the country, he was kicked up to Toronto. Because if I remember correctly, I think he's born in Malaysia. He's Chinese descent, raised in Australia, right? So they were like, yeah, exactly. The look on your face, like, yeah, like hmm. yeah. And they're like, like you know what? You go sit in Toronto. Let us work this out. So all the hiring and pre-production and everything is happening while James is in Canada. So I didn't meet James until Wednesday night. I was I was working on something else, and I went to pick up James at the the apartment him and Lee One L were staying at, where they also ended up doing their editing. Uh, it, was, it was an apartment right above a restaurant. Uh, a whole. Uh, health food store called Erwan and Beverly Boulevard for all you people in Los Angeles. So he was up there. So I went over there, picked him up. We went out and had some Thai food. So I met him Wednesday night. We're shooting in five days. Okay. So I had, I, I went Thursday morning. We walked the locations at this place called Lacey street studios. We all shot it at one place and I had two business days to put a crew together, get film, get camera, get everything I need. I had 48 hours to put that together. Oh, shame. It was so busy with, you know, the actors and costumes and wardrobe and hair. And that movie was a solid million dollars, which means about 350,000 for pre-production, 350 for production and 300,000 for post-production. Right. So that was, that was, I mean, there was just no money. So I, called all the favors I had in, you know, I called Kodak and got a deal on film. I called Panavision, got a camera and grip electric. And it was so last minute. I, you know, all my friends I knew sent me their friends to come work on it. It was, it was like three grips and three electrics. Wow. My buddy, Josh Harrison is a steady cam operator. And I was my first AC. I mean, Jesus, Josh, I think saved that movie because I was operating and that whole movie We'd start shooting on Monday. James had a shot list. James knew what he wanted to do. And thank God he knew what he wanted to do because we didn't have time to pre-production together. We didn't have to ever walk to locate. We we did an initial walk of all the locations. But after that, I never saw James again until Monday morning. Wow. And, And we had no time to meet and talk. We had no time to go over the script. There was no you know, James had some concept drawing ideas. He had, he had his big one he did of Jigsaw and his whole cape and everything, you know. Um, and uh, 
So, uh, so we had no time to talk. So Monday I show up to the set, you know, and that's it. It was, it was brand new. And we had, we had 110,000 feet of film that we got to shoot on. That's all they could afford to buy. Now, for those of you like, okay, was that a lot? The lowest of budget with the minimalist amount of film to shoot a 90-minute movie, you'd want about 140,000 feet of film. Okay. We're at 110,000, which gave us the opportunity to do one take and move on. Majority of that movie is the take one, and that's it. I mean, really? I can count on one hand if we ever got to take three, which was almost near impossible. Wow. And so that's why I was I really credit my 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 buddy Josh Harrison, who was my first at that time, because we were shooting rehearsals. And Josh and I'm handheld and I'm moving the camera back and forth. And Josh had to nail it. Josh had to nail those focuses. And goddamn if he didn't. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, you, you you know, if if it's out of focus, it doesn't make it in the movie. Right. right? right. And if you keep screwing up the focus, oh, take one's no good, take two's no good, take three's no good. Well, you burn in film. You burn in film, yeah. Burn. So, I mean, and James was an immense amount of pedigree. I think he was 26 years old, never made a movie, never been on a set before. And he's he's not only thrown into this, he's thrown into it with, um, uh, you know, we, we, have, we have two scenes left. We only get to shoot one scene. It's all we got time for, which one you want to do. I mean, it would, it would be that tough. Fortunately, James knew what he wanted. And and so that gave me a place to go from. Like if I couldn't quite achieve that, I could get at least close to that. But he had an idea of it. And um, it just, it was, you know, the success of that film was really everybody. I mean, it, it was Josh, that's, you know, being able to get everything in focus the first time without a rehearsal. It's, it's James knowing what he wanted. It was the production designer being able to, I gave up half my grip and lighting package so they could take that money and give it to the production designer so they could finish building the bathroom. The bathroom was the only real build. Everything else was just a dressed set. But it's, it's, um, it's, it's like the scene where, uh, where uh, Shawnee is in the bear trap. You know, yeah. she's got to take the scalpel and cut his stomach open. Yeah. Well, if you watch that whole scene, it's about 50 cuts. Half of them are all close-ups. Yeah. Right. Close up of the time ticking and the fingers. Well, the fingers in the back of the hair was my lo my second AC. This young girl from Australia. She was my second AC. So and I call and, and the DP calls a buddy of his to come in for like, you know, a hundred bucks and a little tiny camera. And we send them off with a light and my assistant. And they put that head on her and put the blood and everything on her filters. And he's just off by himself just shooting those close ups. Right? So I got a buddy for a hundred bucks. Wow. With an extra free camera that Panavision gave me, an Airy 2C, which is an old Aeroflex camera, you know, and, you know, and we get, and you get 400 feet of film and he's shooting all those inserts. Wow. Right. So, so, you know, I mean, the movie's successful because of that, that, that they were able to reproduce the, the head traps, you know, that we were able to budget it, that, I mean, it just, it's such a team effort of why that film was successful. Yeah. And just the story of just the twisted, the whole let's play a game thing and just that whole thing. It was something that was never done before. Well, it's, it's, it's what's so great about it, it's, it's interactive. Yeah. It's completely interactive because yeah. you go, what would I do? Absolutely. What would I do? 
Now, by Saw 3 or 4, me and my camera operator, Brian Gedge, who was on the Saw movie starting on Saw 2, we used to joke when we'd watch the rehearsals of any <laughs> Saw trap, and we figured out the key to surviving a Saw trap was you don't push the play button on the micro cassette recorder. Right. <laughs> because as soon as you push play, the fucking game starts. So we used to stand there quietly and whisper to each other, don't push the play button. Right. Don't do it. Oh, <laughs> As soon as you push the play button, it goes, you know, hello, Jimmy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're fucked. Fuck. The play button. Just, oh, just my God. There until someone finds you, or you at least die a normal death. Yeah, a normal one. So, oh, Jesus. Do you have, it's a silly question, but I have to ask you, do you have, like, it's so dumb, but do you have, like, a specific trap that you think is, like, the most twisted and sadistic? Like, what the fuck, man? Yeah, there's one. It, I think it was Saw. I think it was Saw Four. I listen. Everything's one except for Saw One. From two on's a big saw. Yeah, I'm sure right? they feed I mean, into was each that other. Two, three, four, five. Yeah, the one that was just the Saw Four is the fucked up saw. That's just <laughs> the fucked up saw. Yeah, I mean, there's this color timing. This going. Oh man, this one's really fucked up. Yeah. The one where they're twisting the guy's head. Yeah, it's fucked up the rack. That one, that one got to me. Yeah. That one I was like, oh, that's just that's just fucked up. Yeah. But every trap's got a story to it. Yeah. Um, um, you know, uh, like in Saw 2 where she puts her hands into that glass. Dude, every time I see that, I still go. Ah, man, with the raises, that the needle. I put little lights in that. How I lit it is I put these little tiny, like, uh, cigar little lights, these little tiny baby Kino flows you might put in a car or something. I put them in the box, and I put a light going through the glass box to shine on her face. And it didn't occur to me because we don't rehearse with blood. But when the blood starts to run, the light goes through the red. Yes. And you get this nice red on her face, which 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 I remember sitting at the monitor going, oh, fuck. Oh, yeah. Well, happy accident. I, I can't wait to take credit for that. Right. <laughs> it is so a that, that was a happy accident. Like, oh shit, of course. Red, blood, light. So that was that was that. Yeah. The one where they took Dina Meyer's chest and like filleted yeah. her out. Yeah. That's bad. The, the, the needle, the needle pit's fucked up too, man. Yeah. Well, I, well, the trap, the, that trap, the first time we did it, the, the springs, the springs went, ching, but the chest didn't pull off. And I remember looking at the, the, the special effects guy. I mean, he literally was shaking like, oh, fuck, this isn't working. But they retooled it and, and it boom, and did it the second time it worked. The needle, the needle room is interesting. The, the whole my whole approach to that was if you watch it there's no shadows in it it is just lit bright yes so I, I so i you find the shadow there isn't i'm like you know and at that point i'm like oh my god every hallway is dark every room is you know you know i said you know what the scariest thing in this room are the needles so i said let's just make it bright and yellow and then I, and then and then they had the idea of making the needles dirty and yellow. So I said, so at the bottom of the pit, I said, build me a glass bottom or it was plexiglass, and I'm going to shoot yellow. I put up yellow kino flows going up through the bottom, so it had this yellow glow. And I just said, let's just the scariest thing in the room is the needles. Yeah, right? it just freaks everyone out. 
Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot more gruesome, and there's nothing really gruesome in there. It's no. just, you know, it's the fucking mind meld of, of like uh, needles. And at this point, you guys have such a bigger budget that you can do this shit, no? Well, on Saw 2, I mean, yeah. I don't really ever recall, other than James, James wanted all the traps to be green, and anytime you were in Jigsaw's lair, he wanted green in the background. That was that was pretty much his standing order, and the bathroom was really cool, cool blue. But from there on, I was pretty much left to my own to do what I wanted. Nice. Um, um, uh, you know, the 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 looks. You know, and the, and the looks were like, I don't know, it was like doing six years of music videos. Well, let's try this. Let's try that. You yeah. know, I mean, I would try things. And in, and in some way, because Saw is such a fucked up world, it isn't like you go wrong. Right. It isn't like shooting American Beauty. And, you know, let's try noir. And like, oh, no, wrong story, oh. wrong movie. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's that's not that movie, you know. So, um, um, so. I just got a chance to try a little bit of everything. Can I screen share with you? I don't know. On here? I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm just recording. I don't know what's going to happen if that happens. Oh, no. It says host to save. You got to make me a host. And then I could show. I was going to show you a shot from, from one of the song films. What do you do? You know what you do? You, you send it to me and then I'll post it amongst the swipey swipe deal on Instagram when it comes out. And exclusive. Yeah, the swipey swipe deal. You know. <laughs> You know what I'm talking yeah, about. I don't. There, there's a shot where Tobin Bell and Shawnee Smith, two really wonderful people to work with. I, I, you know, listen. If they weren't, I just wouldn't say anything. That's how you know it's true. But right. Tobin was just the greatest guy, and Shawnee Smith, just the biggest heart in the world. They're just two of the kindest and luckiest people I could spend six franchise movies working with. Yeah. So, well, if Tobin or Shawnee happens to be listening to this. A, listening to this, B, got to this point, check your messages on Instagram because I asked you to come on. <laughs> Listen, they get hit up by a lot of people. I'm sure they do. I did not think that when I hit up Tobin Bell that he would either see it or respond and then third, say yes. Like, I have no expectations of any of that. I didn't yeah. think you were going to respond to me, bro. Well, I don't have agents and managers trying to protect me in my image. Right. It's, it's already screwed Nothing else you could do. <laughs> right. Oh, shit. So now, there was something I wanted to ask you, but I completely forgot. Oh, by the way, I, I sent you on Instagram the picture. It's not a sweater. It's a short sleeve shirt. Christmas, bro. Christmas. Tell me that's not a goddamn reindeer on your sleeve. No, it's not. What is that? It's <laughs> <laughs> a fucking Christmas shirt on the set of Saw that's, in the big bathroom. That's because you're from Brooklyn. It looks like a goddamn fucking reindeer. No, no, that's a tropical shirt with like primitive uh, symbols. That's a frigging Christmas shirt. And that's. It's not a Christmas shirt. I'm telling you. Yeah, I got yeah. it. Do you know how I know is because my <laughs> mother had a whole line of these shirts. And they were all made in Bali. They're these tropical Balinese shirts. Oh, you have a Balinese shirt. All right. Well, that looks like a Christmas shirt to me. And I guess yeah. maybe it's because I am from Brooklyn. But that looks like an upside down flying reindeer. That's Prancer on your sleeve right there, guy. <laughs> yeah, no. No, that ain't it. No, that's there, there it is. That's that's the shirt. Yeah. 
Oh, what is it like a hieroglyph buffalo, like in a cave? That would be better. There's Josh. Well, that's not it. So that's that's Josh Harrison. Right. That's cameras. That's Dan Hefner. What I can't see. I got a point. That's fine. I see it. That's Dan Hefner there, who called me to get the job. Nice. So now, what was? What did you think? <laughs> Reindeer Christmas shirt. I'm wearing shorts and a polyester shirt. It's hotter than hell in that bathroom. Yeah, with prancer on your sleeve on your left arm. Um, yeah, what was it? I'll give you France. What was answer. your What was your initial? It's a stupid question, but I just have to ask since I have you on the horn. Um, what's your What was your like initial? Like, were you shocked that once Saw came out, like how it fucking exploded? This the original. Were you like, holy well, shit, what's happening it, here? It, it. You won't believe this story, but. James and Lee Wano would back me up because they were there. When we were done shooting that day, I, you know, this whole thing was going straight to DVD. This was just another low-budget horror film going straight to DVD, right. right? I mean, everyone has their hopes and their dreams, but, you know, and, and I said to James and Lee, I said, I predict this movie will do a total of $55 million. It just came out of my mouth. It ended up doing $55 million all said and done. You know, and I'm, and I, 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 you know, I just, I'm, I'm not going to chalk it up to intelligence or intuitive. I just channeled something. It wasn't me, but I said that number. And I mean, James and Lee years later were like, dude, you were right. But they tested the film in Las Vegas and I may get the number exactly. I get the exact number, but they tested in Las Vegas. I think a movie to do really well at testing is like 70 something, you know, that's like, holy shit, you're in the seventies. Yeah. They tested this in Vegas, and I think they told me the number was 92. Wow. Out of 100. And they thought that, no, I'm sorry, vice versa. It was like 87 in Vegas. They thought that had to be a mistake. So they brought it to LA. And how you get testing is there's someone on a sidewalk on Hollywood Boulevard with a clipboard saying, hey, want to see a movie? And you say, sure. And you get a free movie ticket and you go there. And for the price of seeing this movie you've never heard of, there's someone who asked you a question, who liked the movie, who didn't like the movie. Uh, you know, what did you think? W- were you bored? Were you not? And then you fill out a little questionnaire. And the movie tested in the 90s. Wow. So that's what turned it around. Now, Saw, that's all done, right? So it's blown up. We premiered at uh, the midnight screening and Sundance. Um, you know, it blew up. But But if you look at just about anything that does really well, Two never does, right? Saw two, saw three. I mean, our conversation would be even, I mean, they even said to me, Dave, look, if you want to go and shoot another project, um, uh, if you want to go shoot another project, um, go ahead. Because, you know, Saw two is going to be, you know, the follow-ups are never any good, right? And, and usually they'll throw 30 million at it. So um, so I, I did, I, they did it early enough in the year. I said, no, no, I'll do it. I'd like to continue with it. And and uh, and they didn't know who was going to direct it. I Now, Darren Bowsman got the job through me. So Darren, who directed 234, Darren worked at this company. I can't remember the name. And he worked like, back, and he had a little office back where they kept all the tape and everything. And he had this project. It was a really cool script. And I think they were on to make it for like a million dollars. And I went in to meet. Right. And so I'm meeting him like in the back room 
with shelves. It's not even an office. It's just the back room of the warehouse in some sense, you know, of this production company. And I met with him and he was, and I just, I said, do you mind if I pitch you to the saw guys? He said, sure. So I called up Greg Hoffman. I said, I met a guy I think would be perfect for saw two. And so that was a Friday. They called him on a Monday and they met him that week. And I think they signed him that Friday. Wow. Then it was Orrin Coolis who had read the same script I read. And they said, why don't we take that script to Darren's and turn it on its head? You take it's the same premise. I don't remember the name of that script. It's the same premise, but we'll make it a soft thing. And that's what became a saw too. Wow. And you know, saw two, we just, you know, and Darren, what Darren did with Saw Two is what I think, you know, James Cameron did with aliens. Just guns and blood. Yeah. Whereas, whereas the first saw is more like Ridley Scott's alien. True. More about what you don't see, what's what's not happening. And by the way, the name Saw, it's it not coming from Saw, like saw your foot off. It's what I saw. Because it's all about peeping toms. It's all about observing. Right? You got people looking through peepholes and on video monitors and watching each other. It's saw what I saw. Right? I never even thought of it like that. Because obviously, the, like the holy shit, one of the holy shit moments is when the guy starts sawing his fucking foot off yeah. with a hacksaw. But yeah, I never even thought of it that way. Yeah, it's it's saw what I saw. So so then you know, saw too just blew way the hell up. Uh, you know, Greg Hoffman had said to me, he says, "I want you to direct Saw 3. right? And I, oh shit, that'd be great. But because Saw two blew up, it changed the whole dynamics because suddenly the thought was, wait, if Dave directs Saw three. Who's going to shoot Saw Three and Shelf? Or so they. So I just stayed in the train to be the DP, which, in some sense, was fine with me because, as much as I contributed as a cinematographer, it wasn't necessarily my sensibility. I mean, I, I my sensibility would be more like the first Saw, right? And then Saw Two blew up, and Saw Two wasn't my sensibilities of how I would do it because if they gave me a Saw Three, I'd try to make it like Saw One. Right. Of what you don't see, like you know, Alien. You know when they when they carry, kill Harry Dean Stanton, and they cut to the cat's face. Yes, right? yeah, yeah I, I'm more that sensibility. Whereas James Cameron is like, no, let's have fifty aliens coming at you, and we just turn on an automatic machine gun. <laughs> right, and the hands, and the hands get cut off. So, so it was like I was like, no, that's my my sensibility. Unfortunately, Greg Hoffman passed away very suddenly. Unfortunately. Um, not long after Saw 2, before Saw 3, which changed the whole dynamics of things. Yeah. But, um, but um, he was really a great guy, took care of his crew, he's really, really a solid guy. You know, I also want to say that I wouldn't have gotten Saw done, at least for my part. Uh, my gaffer was now a really, really good DP. His name is Yaron Levy, Y-A-R-O-N, uh, Yaron Levy. Uh, he's really a fantastic DP, one of the fastest lighters I've ever met. And he was my gaffer. And he he just, we made, we, we did a miracle is what we did. Yeah. Having that thing pre-lit, 99% of the movie was pre-lit because I just didn't have time to do rehearsals and light it. So, but, you know, I, I have to give him a mention. How um, long from start to till everything was wrapped did, did the original take to film? 
18 days, uh, 18 days. three, six day weeks with wow. one day off to wash your laundry and come back. It was, yeah. it, was, it was tough. It was a burner. It was a real burner. But um, but Saw 2 then blew up, and it oh, and it took us all by surprise. And and we just, we, we I mean, I'll speak from my observation. So in Saw 2, we suddenly needed a bathroom, and, you know, because we had to build it. And so, but no one had measurements and everything. So I took a lot of behind-the-scene photos. I had a lot of photos. So everyone's getting my photos and looking at my photos, trying to reproduce the bathroom from the original saw for saw two. Yeah. Well, at the, at the wrap of any movie, you, you know, you wrap shit and you throw it away. So, but no one had really thought about saw three. And so we're writing saw three and going, Oh shit, we need another bathroom. <laughs> yeah. And so they had to, so, so one of the things they tried was there was a, what is the comedy spoof about horror movies where they had, was it Shaq and, and, and Dr. Phil in a bath saw bathroom. Uh, what, what was that? Comedy parody. parody, And they parodied that scene. I think it was Shaq and Dr. Phil. Really? Okay. I got I to gotta scope that out. <laughs> and, and so that film was shot in Vancouver. Was it, is it Scream is the comedy? Was comedy horror the spoof? Well, sc- scary movie. Scary movie. That's it. Scary movie. Yeah, scary right. movie. They built a saw bathroom, and I'm pretty damn sure the audience will check me that it was Shaq and Dr. Phil. So we had gotten word they had built a set, so we bought that set and had it shipped from Vancouver. No they shit! It, they put it together, and they're like, no, this is the wrong set. And they're like, it ain't gonna work. So they had to rebuild it. I don't think it was until Saw 3 that they said, let's put it in storage. Yeah, let's... <laughs> let's put this in storage, because we may need it. So, wow. um, you know, tales from the dark side, but no, it just, it kept surprising the hell out of everybody. Yeah. It just kept getting bigger and bigger and blowing up more. It, and it, it, and it, it set the stage for a lot of other movies, like all the hostile movies and all that kind of shit. Yeah, it set the stages. You know, the first movie that I saw that used the look I had was, you know, and I'm only guessing but it looked like my work was the Nicole Kidman uh, remake of uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I don't think it was called that. Um, no, I was going to say. Uh... It was the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. They remade it. And I watched the movie and I'm like, damn, it looks like my movie. I mean, color wise, color palette, yeah. they did the greens and the yellows. And, gotcha. you know. but, that, it, but that starts to hurt you in the end, too. I mean, I, there's somebody called my agent once, talked to, to wanted to meet me to shoot a movie, and they said, "Well, is he going to make everything green?" Agent, <laughs> no, that's what they wanted for the Saw movie. Right. You know, they're not gonna. <laughs> right. My agent's literally trying to convince me he'll make it look like the way you want it to look. It won't look all green. Exactly. He's got other tools in his toolbox. Yeah, like 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 one of your favorites is uh, which is not green, which is um, Hellraiser Revelations. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Hellraiser, Hellraiser. It was Hellraiser Nine. I, I got the script and I said I didn't know there was a Hellraiser Five. Right. Um, I lost they, track of those. Before we go into that, I will say that everyone, you know, the horror people, that there's like the big four of horror. 
of the franchise, which is Friday the 13th, Halloween, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Nightmare on Elm Street. But if there was a fifth, I would say a lot of people would say yeah. Hellraiser, but I don't think so. I think that was, uh, was What's his name who did Hellraiser films? Uh, um, was it Clive? Uh, Clive Barker? Clive Barker, right, yeah. isn't it? The, yes. the, yeah, the Hellraiser film. Hell, hell, that Hellraiser, that's why you said, oh, I'll put that on your poster. I'm like, no, I don't put that on the poster. Well, there's only one photo on the top right. Let, of the let me tell you, it's not a real Hellraiser. I, I know. Why? And so the reason it came up, so my agent called me and he said, hey, you want to make a quick buck and you got to start working like, like this Monday. I'm like, what? And he goes, <laughs> Hellraiser 9. I'm like, 9? <laughs> and I go, why? So the story behind that film, the whole film was like $325,000. What happened is I don't know who owned the rights to it, but right. whoever owned the rights to it, they screwed up and they missed in their little contract somewhere as you lose the rights. If you haven't made the film and it's in post-production or something by this date. And it literally, they were going to lose the right to the Hellraiser franchise that apparently this company owned if they didn't make something. So they quickly just, they, I don't know how they found a script and they threw like 350,000 bucks at it, which is nothing. That's parking money. Yeah. It. And they just like, you know, you're just making this so we can keep the franchise. I'm like, I mean, it doesn't mean I didn't, you know, put my best foot forward with 320. You know, I was like, well, I'm not working right now. Sure. Right. But yeah. It, uh, it was, it didn't do well review wise. No, because, well, because, it looked good. The hell, it did. It but the Hellraiser fans were like, "That's not Doug Bradley as hell as Pinhead," and people hold that shit like close to their hearts for some fucking crazy. Yeah, no. Yeah, I, I, I got, I got my, I got pictures of myself eating lunch at at, at lunch with both those Pinheads sitting next to me who were just eating, and I got a couple <laughs> Pinheads by me. Nice. <laughs> so. Safe to say that you're like, eh, with the Hellraiser movie. <laughs> yeah, I was, you know, I mean, you know, Hollywood whore. You, you're going to pay me to show up? Okay, I'll show oh, up. Oh, yeah. I mean, listen, you have a job to do. It's, 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 you yeah, know, that, that wasn't, that wasn't, well, it, it, I actually, for the money, I was actually very, very pleased how it ended up looking. Right. So, um, but I didn't realize it was only that cheap. I mean, yeah, no, that was that was just to save them from losing the rights. They had to have something made, shot, and in the can to some degree. Otherwise, they lose the rights. Wow. Okay. Say behind-the-scenes shit. I had no idea. But then I think they came out with, I don't know how many more after that. There's a bunch. No, I didn't know there was a Hellraiser 9. I haven't been tracking. Yeah, no, me neither. I'm not really that big of a Hellraiser guy. <laughs> I, I've only seen the first one. You know. Which 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 is good. It doesn't age very well, but it's it, it is what it is. It's a classic. And then uh, it's not like a fine Bordeaux. It just didn't. Right. Age. It's, it's, not, it's right. It, it's like listen. Like you watch. I mean, I've seen it. So if if I went ten years without seeing it, I'd be fine. Like the original Halloween. It still holds up. You know what I mean? Like there's something about it. It's it's a hold. But then you you watch Hellraiser, the first one. There's something about it. it just doesn't hold up. And it came out God knows how many years afterwards. But whatever. It is what it is. I wanna know, I wanna know about um a little bit about MTV Cribs guy. 
Talk to me about some behind the scenes shit M- nobody knows about. Well, MTV Cribs, I mean, that paid my bills when I got out of AFI in 98. You know, it, it isn't because you graduated as a cinematographer. People were standing out there handing you scripts and like, hey, you want to work? Um, you know, I went, I, I went back. I had been doing it before and I went back to it and I had a great run. I've seen... I, you know, there, there's a, it, it was a little disheartening after a while. I was doing a famous basketball player, and I honestly don't remember who it was. He was down south of us, and we were cribbing his house, and me and the Steadicam operator, were you do B-roll. You shoot them, you go follow them through the house, and then you B-roll. And this guy had 600 pairs of shoes and little cubby holes. And his pride was, he's like, I get the shoe, I wear it once, and then I put it in this cubby hole. And you're watching like 600 pairs of shoes, man. I'm like, you know, it, it wasn't the height of my cinematography career. But I mean, I've, 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 uh, most everyone, I think everyone was very nice. Little things you would do, you would like me and the steady cam operator, we'd look in the glove box of the cars, like, here's my Ferrari, here's my, we'd always open them up to see, because we'd go in B-roll, and we were curious to see if there was a Hertz rental car slip in there. Right. You know, some of how, them many, how many rent the cars were there? There's a- I, I'd say a fourth of the cars were rental. Uh-huh. If we ever, for the ones that we saw cars with. Right. But, you know, I won't give names away. I think the most, the most you know, I mean, the most impressive house was, uh, I don't remember who it was, Blink-182. He he had a home down in Corona. And it was this gorgeous house with stone floor everywhere, heated floor. And it was an amazing house. But the most fun had to be Tommy Lee. That nice. was the most fun. He was so cool. It started late, about 4 o'clock. And we're there. And, he's, and he, we start cribbing his house. But he had some lady friends who had been over. And these lady friends uh, just happened to be naked when you'd walk into certain rooms or like in the shower. It never <laughs> made the final cribs. Right. But, you know, but, uh, but you're, you're like, you know, one of the g- girls walked out and she's like, I don't know if I want to do it. And he's like, it's OK. It's just it's just the, this one camera guy. And they're like, yeah, whatever. And, you know, but. He was a gracious host. And when we were all done, I think it was his manager said, hey, I'll cook you guys dinner. So we hung out, had a big dinner. And then we went down to his music room and, and he's got, you know, the speakers are as big as the room. Yeah. And he said, hey, this is my latest album. He, I got a DVD he signed for me. And we sat and hung out and played music. And, and, uh, and he had all of his golden platinum records all over the place. Yeah, all, all over the place. It a great big house. I don't think he's at that house anymore. And, and you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. I'm it sure was, it must have been fun. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It was a fun time. You know, with, you know, but, Everyone's well, but well, I don't think any there was no one ever not nice to us. I mean, for God's sakes, we're gonna trying to make them look good. Right. You don't have to expose anybody for being an asshole. That's fine. No, no, no. I'm just being honest. I mean, yeah. look, I, I did I did a couple hundred. I could if there was someone who was an ass, I don't remember. But no, everyone was cool. Um, um, but I, I will I did the blink 182. I didn't. I hadn't heard of Blink One Eighty Two when we went to their house, right? Okay. 
And the producers sometimes would get mad at me because I'd be like, hey, how are you? And you start chatting with them, you know, just privately. And I go and I'll, and I'll do things like, so what do you play in the band? <laughs> and and they'll be like, oh, well, I'm the drummer. And, you know, I'm like, oh, right on. I hear you guys are really big. And, and they're like, yeah, yeah, we are. And, you know, the producer, like, don't ask him what he plays. I'm like, well, I didn't know. Right. Yeah. Did you happen to do the one from Master P? No. I did. I, the only ones I did in Southern California. Oh, okay. Well, and then the, uh, you know, um, then we did one in Cabo San Lucas. I shot. There's this, there's the, what isn't, no, it's not MTV. I did, uh, Alice Cooper was going to start a tour uh, and he started at Cabo Wabo at Sammy Hagar's place. Right. And Slash and Raw Zombie were part of the concert. We shot with 16 millimeter cameras. You can see it on YouTube. If you go Alice Cooper, Cabo Wabo, I just looked at it for the first time like a year ago. Okay. And, and like, oh, wow. I hadn't never, I had never, I shot it, never saw it again. Um, and uh, that was a real. I got. I got the. I got this great clay tequila bottle uh, from Cabo Wabo, and I asked Sammy. I was having dinner with him. I said, "Would you ask, you know, the guys if they would sign my thing?" So yeah. I got the only mug with them. I got a little my old pass and my little mug or my bottle, my clay bottle of uh, Cabo Wabo tequila with all That's four cool. pictures on it. Yeah, it's my my nice little little things you pick up along the way. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, how about, which I just recently watched as well, The Grave Dances? Yeah, shot that in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, Mike Mendez. Mike loves horror. Mike Green, is, Green, Greensboro? Greensboro, North Carolina. I used to live about 40 minutes away from there for about a little less than a year. Go on. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it was uh, I don't, probably four weeks. Uh, you know, my great vision, Mike had a great vision as a horror director and uh, this he wrote and I think he edited it too because he's he's a really good editor too. Yeah. Um, you know, that, uh, I don't know if I have much stories from that other than it was a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, how, about, how about your directorial debut with Pawn? Pawn was... Pawn Ray Liotta, Michael Chiklis, fucking uh, Forrest Whitaker. Common is in it, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, Stephen Langs. If you yeah. don't know Stephen, Stephen Langs, the badass uh, military guy in uh, Avatar. Yes. Stephen's great. I mean, I was so lucky to have that cast in it. was so low budget. The thing that I love... Mike come I loved working with Ray Liotta. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. I want to shake that guy's hand. Ray Liotta, here's a little secret. You kiss his ass, man, you're on his shit list. It was, so I'm, I remember it was about three days before he was going to fly out. We shot out in Connecticut. And I get this area code that's from my area code. And I had been, no caller ID. And I answered. I go, hi, hi, it's David. And he go, Dave, it's Ray Liotta. And I said, no shit. And he goes, what? I said, well, how often does your phone ring and they say it's Ray Liotta? Yeah. And he goes, fuck you. And I go, fuck you. He's like, okay, let's meet for dinner. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Ray is no nonsense, straightforward. He, 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 what you see is what you get. And, and I remember in this one scene, I came up to him with a note. And it was my first film I'm directing, even though I'd been in the business, you know, 30 years at that point been on a lot of sets it's still tech it is my first film directing 
And I had him, I said, what do you think about doing this? And he was so cool. He said, okay, I could play it like this, or I could play it like this. And I don't think you want this. And I go, you know, you're right. I do want that. He goes, exactly. I mean, that he took the time to, to like say, okay, if we did it that way, this is what you're going to get. But is this what you want? Because this is what's happening here in the story. And I said, you know, you're right. That is a good point. Yeah. And, and just that he took the time to do that from me and, you know, even text me at the airport. He's like, hey, good to meet you. Don't let anyone fuck with you. You know what you're doing. <laughs> there you go. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Ray, I just, I just, I just had the best thing in my heart for Ray Liotta. And yeah. so lucky to have worked with him. Yeah. How was Michael Chiklis? He was in a, he was in one of my favorite shows back in the day that. Yeah. The Shield. Was, the Shield was fucking incredible, man. Yeah. Uh, Chiklis really knows story. He is so good with story. I mean, he really gets story. And maybe I'm saying that because when I told him my story ideas, he liked them. So. So yeah, you're biased. He liked my ideas, so of course I'm going to praise him. But no, he was. I mean, yes to that. But no, he's he's really good with story. Mm. He just he really just understands story and how it weaves and how it unfolds. And um, and you know, and then Stephen Lang is such an adamant professional. You know, um, uh, just a great have. I mean, for your first film, when you have actors like that. You don't have to do a lot of directing because you just go and they do and you go, yeah. 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 I mean, you know, I mean, there, there'd be times to be like, I think this is what's going on. You have those discussion, but it's it's like how I always imagined Lord of the Rings was like he cast that movie and then he just went off to craft service and got a sandwich. It's just, right. you know, I mean, of course he didn't do that, but but you just you, you I think. Casting is everything. You get that casting right. You get an actor who embodies what the, what the character is. It's just, you know, because that's why you're hiring them. You're like, I want you, you know, to bring this character life. But when you get good actors, man, it's so it's so amazing. It's, it makes it, your life that much easier. It makes your life so much easier. Yeah. And then you can just talk little nuances from that point on. You know, and I've and I've watched a lot of directors as a camera assistant, as a DP, and I've seen all the mistakes you can make. And, uh, you know, and I think for me, what I come away from decades of watching it all is just listening, just listening. You know, when Peter Stamar, I met with him for my second film and we didn't even talk about the movie or the script. We, you know, Which we, was? Uh, 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 my second film, um, it's called uh, The Assassin's Code. The Assassin's Code. And, okay. and Peter plays the assassin in that. And we met. We never talked about the movie. And and when he left, when he was leaving, we just talked about everything else. We talked about meatballs and everything else from there on. Yeah. That's what, what he had for lunch. He's like, I'll have a plate of meatballs. And and Peter was leaving. And I said, so let me know if you want to do the film. And he looked. He says, oh, yeah, you make sense. Sure. Yeah. You know? And, and, and I even asked him at lunch, I said, I said, um, why did you want to have lunch with me? I mean, you know, there's the obvious, but he says, he says, I wanted to see, even though you've been around this, you're still a new filmmaker as a director. He says, first time directors can really get it in their head, what they want. Like they got it in stone, what they want. And he says, and I don't find that a lot of fun. He says, because I don't get to play and move around and navigate and explore. 
And I just wanted to see if there was going to be any room for me to do, you know, to try to bring me into it. Or if you just had me so locked. And he says, no, you made sense. And Justin Chatwin, who was also the other star in the movie, I met with him. And, um, you know, I did. And I asked him the same question. I said, why did you want to meet? He says, I just want to look in your eyes and see if you were crazy or not. You know, <laughs> yeah. it just, it, you know, we didn't even talk about the movie there. It's really dating in some sense, you know, like, what is this relationship going to be like? True. Yeah. You know? Because because that's what dating is. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, know, you know, in the first three minutes of any date, like this girl, this guy's crazy. And this is going to be a roller coaster. But then we always fuck it up because we think, oh, but I'll be the one to make it better. I'll oh, be of course we do. <laughs> yeah. And then my friends are like six months later. They're like, oh, man, this girl's crazy. This guy's crazy. And I'm like, no, that's, you knew they were crazy when they met them. You just thought it was going to be different because of you. So Exactly. Exactly. We're so <laughs> stupid sometimes. Now, we know what we're doing. We know. We, we actually, we, we do. We do. You know, I can't believe he did this. I can't believe she. Yeah, you can. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, crazy when you meet it, you know, you know, like when I first talked to you on the phone, I'm like, OK, you're my kind of crazy. Right. You know, I can relate. But then right. there's like, I don't I'm not going to do a podcast with you. You're right. Not, you're not my crazy. Right. I get it. Yeah, there's there's. Like when we were talking on the phone, I was like, "Guy, right, this is gonna be cool. It'll be easy to talk to you." But if you were like some fucking weirdo, I'd just be—I'd come into this even if you were still willing to do it. I'd just be like, uh, "I don't know about." I got it. ten questions here for you. Yeah, yeah. That's the first time ever that I have a list of fucking questions for anybody. That's—it's it's the key to anything. It's the key to the film industry because yeah. you don't have a lot of time to get on a two-month date. You gotta, you gotta interview. If you're being interviewed, or you're, if you're being interviewed, you gotta interview back. You gotta, you gotta listen to your red flags. Yeah. You gotta listen to your red flags. And I think, you know, that that inner sense you because we all know. We all know. I think ladies out there, if you're listening, you know when creepy guys come up to you and hit on you. And 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 you know in 10 seconds, yeah. creepy guy. And but you also know, like, this guy is kind of interesting. And then you keep talking, you know, and the same for guys and for girls and yeah. people and anything. But but we all know when crazy's really crazy and I need to get away. <laughs> yeah. And the only reason and people complain, oh, I'm breaking up after a year. I just do you know all the shit I went through? No, you fucking said yes to it. You exactly. knew you were gonna be on this roller coaster. Now you're trying to make it their fault. Right. Of course. Perfect. That's right. You knew. You knew from jump, and now now all of a sudden it's my fault. Yeah, it's my fault. Uh, he's just, uh, he, he's lying all the time. He was lying when he met you. How could you not tell? <laughs> and then and then this happens to everyone. It's happened to me. You yep. this happens to everybody. You break up, and then suddenly your friends start telling you the truth. Oh, I'm really glad you broke up, Jimmy. God, Jimmy, this, Jimmy, that, Jimmy, yep. this. And you're like sitting there going, what the fuck? Yeah. Why didn't anyone tell me? It's like, yeah. because you were, you were in your little bubble of illusion and you yeah. weren't going to listen. And we all knew. Yeah. And, and their friends are telling them the same thing. Yeah. I know. Every to anyone who's ever broken up, if you got on as friends, they've always come to you after going, yeah, that one. Yeah. <laughs> and you're the dumb one going, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't see that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Oh, maybe I actually knew, but I was still that guy that maybe this time it'll be different kind of guy. 
Yeah. And you go running and like, I got a new relationship. No, that's like your last one. Right. It's like buying a 79 Buick and putting a new paint job on it going, I got a new car. It's no, that's just like your old car. Right. <laughs> that's hilarious. Uh, you, you know what? A little quick segue. You mind if I throw out my sponsors real quick? No, yeah, then we'll wrap it up. That'd be perfect. Yeah, I got a couple little quick, quick, quick more questions for you. I'm not going to hold you hostage for too much longer, though. You um, yourself out there, buddy. Are you a coffee guy? Um, yeah, more of a black tea. I love, like, black Indian tea. All right. Well, one of my sponsors, I believe, has different variations of tea as well. Um, de- I'm serious. Dead Sled Coffee, D E A D S L E D Coffee. Now, before I get into all this, the three sponsors I have have been have I've been using their stuff way before the podcast was even a thing. So I'm not blowing smoke up anybody's ass, and they're all independently small run businesses. So Dead Sled Coffee, follow them on Instagram at Dead Sled Coffee. If you go to deadsledcoffee.com and you put in the promo code Brooklyn Blast, you'll get 20% off of your order and anything $60 or more is free domestic shipping. But what's cool with them is that they have like officially licensed, they're not like this foo-foo, nose in the air, my coffee's, you know, pinky out kind of shit they um they have officially licensed stuff with like a lot of horror people and musicians like they have a a Kane Hodder blend they have a Robert Anglin blend they have an Elvira blend Vincent Price Rob Zombie Skid Row the band Kiss Cypress Hill they have all these exclusive cool little mini runs of these all these different blends and they have officially yeah it's pretty cool man and um they do stuff with musicians as well but this like i said it's a small company and i've been drinking it before they even sponsored the podcast so dead sled coffee just google it and if you go to deadsledcoffee.com put in brooklyn blast you get some a few dollars off of your order and it's free shipping for anything sixty dollars or more Second sponsor, this one's local. It's called Generation Records, located at 210 Thompson Street in the West Village here in New York City. Follow them on Instagram at Generation Records as well. If you cannot make the actual brick and mortar spot, you can, they have an eBay page or you can go to generationrecords.bigcartel.com and order stuff online from there. They've been around since 92. Old school, vinyl records, T-shirts, posters. Like You walk in there, it's like you take a step back into like the early 90s and the 80s with records and stuff which is pretty cool that they survived this whole pandemic shit. So once again, Generation Records. And last but not least is New Republic Printing. For screen printing, embroidery, vinyl stickers, and buttons, follow them as well on Instagram at New Republic Printing. If you go to newrepublicprinting.com, there's a drop-down menu. You can pick and choose what brand of clothing you want anything printed on, whether it's T-shirts, you know, the brands themselves, you know, Hanes, Gildan, whatever. T-shirts, hoodies, tank tops, sweatpants, windbreakers, whatever you want. The cool thing about them, I've been using them for like 15 years on and off. There's no setup fees. There's no screen fees. And if you have your order shipped to any commercial address, it's free UPS ground shipping. For instance, you can make a thousand David A. Armstrong t-shirts, Dave, and you can get them shipped to, I don't know, a a studio that you trust the guy, whatever. You can get a thousand shirts made and you have 50 boxes delivered. It doesn't cost you a nickel extra. You know what I mean? So it's good. You know, or Christmas sweaters or Christmas sweaters with upside down prances on the left sleeve. Um, <laughs> so it's Dead Sled Coffee, Generation Records and New Republic Print. 
That's it. Thank you for being sponsors. Now I do have a question. Are you working on anything right now? Um, I am. Or anything, anything in, in, in the, you know. In yeah, actually, uh, um, uh, a horror script that, oh gosh, I probably came across 10 years ago. A buddy of mine who's a big horror uh, screenwriter and it's got, he had, I think he's got four films, he's four scripts he sold last year. Uh, have a meeting for that tomorrow. Nice. So I'm, very, I'm very excited. The, the, there's people who have read it and uh, my manager really loves it. And so, you know, we're going to be shopping. Listen, a film industry is like sitting around a fire with pokers in it and you're just waiting for one to get cherry hot. Like, I, I think the worst question to ask someone in the film industry is like, what's going on? Of course. There's, there's either either I'm making a movie or I'm not making a movie. Right. I figured as much. <laughs> yeah. And so 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 when people ask you that question, you're trying to look smart and witty, like, well, you know, I mean, I do got that tomorrow. Uh, Valerie and I are are retooling our, probably our best received script we've ever written. Um, we're retooling that. And um and I'm really excited about getting that out again. And, you know, we got a great TV pilot we've written. It's called, it, it's adapted from a YA novel, a young adult novel. The, the YA novel is called uh, Max Random and the Zombie 500. And we have uh, rewritten it with the title of uh, Girl's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse. And it's about a 14-year-old girl in the middle of a zombie apocalypse here in Hollywood. It breaks out and she's rescued by this young 14 year old boy who's got Asperger's and they got to sort of navigate this. Okay. And, and our premise is for our zombies is it isn't traditional people die and they come back because of a disease. It's because of the, uh, uh, the uh, health community. So the, the, in our world, uh, nanotechnology, which exists, but now we're a little in the future. Nanotechnology exists. And they go, oh, I don't like these age lines. I don't like gray hair. They send nanotechnology in and nanobots reconstruct those skin. So you don't have the age lines or gray hair. You want your hair to grow back, but it gets out of hand and the nanobots run around going, well, this liver needs redoing and this heart needs redoing. And, and so it ends up initially killing people until they finally, kind of like the virus now, it finally keeps reproducing itself so it can keep surviving and the nanobots keep doing that. So it, it's the vanity in the health community that's, that's gone awry with gotcha. the And so when they bite you, it isn't to eat you, it's to get the nanobots into you. So it's like, so it can keep trying to, cause it doesn't know wrong or right. It just goes, you're not a perfect human. So we need to get in there and reconfigure them. So it's, it's program gone awry on nanobots. So that's, that's right. the pilot we have for that. It's called Girl's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse. We love that pilot. And, you know, and I won't spin off on all the other projects. But, yeah, we, we Valerie and I have been together, about, I think, coming on 11 years. And when I met her, she had written, like, 11 comedy scripts. And then we just started writing our own scripts. I mean, we have a true-to-life Vietnam rescue film that won, won the pilot, the Medal of Honor. I love that. Really? That's we have, awesome. We have a time, sort of a lake house meets It's a Wonderful Life, where letters are traded back and forth in time and change history and have to undo that. So we, we bounce all over those. We have a Me Too ghost story. Uh, it's called Crybaby Bridge. 
And it's a it's a Me Too ghost story dealing with the death of a woman in the 60s and and a, and a, and a, and a young girl now in high school who gets pregnant. And, you know, it sort of parallels what has changed for women and what hasn't changed for women. And, uh, you know, it's our it's a we call it our Me Too ghost story. That's crybaby. Yeah. So, you know, I've just gotten into I never thought I was going to be a screenwriter. And, yeah. you know, and, and Valerie and I, uh, you know, I've learned a lot from her. And have been able to get my ideas on paper, and we write together. So um, we—that's what we've been doing. Yeah. So awesome. Working on getting the next project in the age of pan in the age of coronavirus pandemia. We live in pandemia. pandemia. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I will say that you did. You did. Um, you did write me, and you did say that you've been uh, writing me into one of your scripts. Oh yeah. Well, when I first heard your voice, I thought I thought I got Andrew Dice Clay on the other line. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if you ever need a heavily tattooed idiot from Brooklyn to say a couple two tree well, lines, we need to do a show on your tattoos and in color because I I want to see. They, they're all. They're, I have no color. Yeah. It's all. It's all gray wash. It's all. It's all. Black, right. well, hold your hold your hands up like this because they go up real quick and I don't see what they are. Holy shit. You know what I admire about people with tattoos? I have such it commitment says stuff. Issues. I have like a lot of scribble. I have such commitment issues that I could never get a tattoo because I couldn't get rid of it. But I keep thinking about it. One of these days I think about getting a tattoo just just for the sake of committing to it. Just get a circular saw blade on the back of your neck. Yeah. <laughs> I'd want to look at it. I don't want to be looking over my shoulder every time. At, at this point, I have so much scribble all over me. I I don't even recognize them. I don't even notice them anymore. People ask, how many tattoos do you have? I'm like, I don't know. Like, do you count like an entire sleeve, one tattoo? Like, or are you or, or is it like how many times I've ever sat in a chair? Well, that's and got work done. Like, I, I don't know if, if it's if it's every time I sat in a chair, I'd say like 60. I don't know. I admire people with tattoos. I admire the commitment. I yeah, really do. Yeah. Do. Oh, it's going it's to look like shit when you get older. Who cares? I, I, won't care I don't care point. now. I'm going to care when I'm older? No. Why? Next, ladies and gentlemen, that'll be my next show with Jimmy here. We're going to do, we're gonna just do have a tattoo conversation. Wait, hey, listen, I'm, I'm down to talk about whatever. <laughs> I'm down to talk about whatever. Now, like I said, like like I said in the beginning, you know, you're kind of like a low key guy. You want to throw out your Instagram shit, or you want people to follow you, or anything like that, or no? No, no, there's nothing out there to follow. <laughs> All right, there you go. There's nothing. Check out, out there just, just listen. Check out just if you type in David A. Armstrong, his IMDb will come up, and you just watch the shit that he's done. There's a lot of David A. Armstrong. There's a David Armstrong who's a black and white New York photographer. Yeah, well, that's because, not you. Yeah, that's not me. With your photographs, that's not me. Um, yeah, but surprisingly, there's a lot of David Armstrongs out there. That's why I got the A in there, so I didn't. I could stick out. Yes. Well, if you just Google David A. Armstrong cinematographer, there you go. You just go to IMDb. Right. Well, yeah. So, Very simple. So you check out asked my, about my 1947 Rockola jukebox back here. I didn't ask about it, but I've been staring at it for an hour and a half. Yes. And, and all I've been thinking was that, and I was thinking that, you know, about your, about your comments about people who think, you know, all their music sucks. And once you said that, 
I was looking at that and I'm wondering what might be in there. Well, that's all that's all 30s. It's all 30s, you know, uh, 30s and 40s, you know, Benny Goodman, Frank Sinatra, you know, uh, uh, all that. I have a in the other room, I have a 1969 Wurlitzer, you know, a little bit more modern jukebox that has all my 70s records. I got I got I got turntables and records everywhere. Nice. I got I got I got a like a 79 Marantz and old 80s Kenwood and yeah I love I love great vintage uh, stereo equipment just love the sound there some of them are tubes some of them are the older transistors yeah but uh, yeah I got different ways to play music see Generation Records fucking vinyl for days two floors of just records everywhere yeah. it's awesome. Yeah, I probably got about a thousand LPs. I think they're all littered throughout the living room here. Okay. Yeah, I grew up on that kind of shit, but I, I sold a lot of it. I kicked myself in the ass for selling a lot of it. I have some things again that I rebought, but I grew up on that. The whole ritual of going to the store, reading lyrics as you put, played it and stuff. If you had stuff from a kid, it probably sounds like shit anyways. It probably just got so grinded out and not clean needles and whatnot. Probably better you buy it now anyway. Yeah. You yeah. reproduce everything. It's True. wonderful. Yeah, man. Well, cool. Listen, this was cool. I I, I knew we would have like a, a normal conversation. It'd be easy to talk to. And uh, I already... I love that this was normal. Oh, every, who, these are how my episodes usually go. There's a couple here and there. Like, oh, this, this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate it. I mean... Yeah, I spoke with you on the phone yesterday, and I was like, yeah, I could talk to this guy. Yeah, same here. I was like, I was telling my girlfriend, I was like, yeah, I think it's going to be funny. He's like an easy to talk. He's chatty. He knows how to talk. He's like, he can have a conversation. It's not like he has, like, this fucking ego, like, yeah, I made sauce, so, you know, uh, I, I didn't get that vibe whatsoever. Yeah, as, soon, as soon as you said fucking ego, my girlfriend stuck her head around, looked around the corner like. <laughs> well, you live That's together, right. so you go. Well, well, she lives with you and she knows a completely different version of you. So, you know, that's how usually it is, you know? Yeah, that's <laughs> in the windmills of my mind. All right. <laughs> Leave her alone. If you only knew who I think I am, you wouldn't talk to me this way. All right. No, nah, I still would, whatever. <laughs> whatever. I appreciate the compliment. Thank you. Now, this has been very cool, very easy. Yeah, absolutely. Dude, thank you again for your time. Um. I posted like a little tease, like you'll see how I do it. Like I'll post a teaser. I'll leave it up on Instagram for a couple of days and I'll take it down. And then like my actual episode that's slated for that time, that, that flyer will remain there. And then I'll tease things, take it down. So after every episode, that official flyer is what remains there. So you'll see me post whatever, maybe the Christmas sweater, a hashtag Christmas sweater for you picture. I'll put up. You know, yeah, it's Christmas sweater. I've never, I've, uh, that is the most unappealing thing you could ever say to me as I was in a Christmas sweater. <laughs> ha hashtag prancer sleeve. Prancer sleeve. Good thing you're on the other side of the country. I'm going to send it, I'm going to take the opportunity to send a shout out to my buddy Creaky in Australia. Hey, Creaky, thinking of you, buddy. There you go. Shout out to Creaky down on the. He's down under, way right. down there. Way down there. Cool. That, that's my man. The only friend I have, and he's on the other side of the planet. Maybe it's better off. Maybe that's why you remain friends. That's probably why we remain <laughs> friends, yeah. Keep, keep that relationship distance enough. Yes. Yeah, Creaky's awesome. the best, man. Very cool.
Shout out to Creaky once again. Dave, thanks a lot, dude. I will, uh, I'll be in touch. You have my number. If you miss my voice, listen to a podcast or give me a ring, whatever you want. You got it. All right. Thanks a lot, buddy. Thanks for the ask, Jimmy. Take care, man. Anytime. Good luck with the show. Thanks a lot, man. All right. Later.